0: Welcome to The Thing About Austen, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this
1: episode, we're talking about Mary Ann's washing. We are taking a look at sense and sensibility for this episode, with another topic that was requested by several listeners. At this point in the novel, Marianne and Eleanor are still in London with Mrs. Jennings, but have been spending their days with Lady Middleton, as Mrs. Jennings is busy with her other daughter, Charlotte, who has just given birth. The Miss Steels are staying with Lady Middleton, so there's a lot of steel Dashwood time going on here, and everybody is very excited about it. Everyone's having the best time.
0: So much fun.
1: And so during this time, Anne Steele is closely, and we do mean closely, observing
0: everything. Very, very uh, interested in Marianne. So this is from the text. Nothing escaped her minute observation and general curiosity. She saw everything, and asked everything. Was never easy till she knew the price of every part of Marianne's dress, could have guessed the number of her gowns altogether with better judgment than Marianne herself, and was not without hopes of finding out before they parted how much her washing cost per week and how much she had every year to spend upon herself. She is all up in Marianne's business.
1: Miss Steele has questions, you know, she just, she wants to know what's going on.
0: All the questions.
1: So, for this episode, we will start out by focusing on laundry in general. That includes the process involved and the women who largely performed the labor. And then we'll get back to how that
0: shows up in Austin's works. So, there are two main ways that people would get their laundry done during the Georgian era. First, if you were really wealthy, you might have a built in laundry facility called a washing house, and a live-in laundry maid or two. So that's kind of first main option. The second option was that you might hire a washerwoman who was not part of your household to do your laundry for you.
1: Even within these two broad categories, there were a lot of variations. For example, a well-off household might have a washing house but not a live-in maid instead hiring washerwomen to come use the facilities on washing day. Or you might have a laundry maid, but still hire part-time washerwomen to help with laundry
0: when there was a high volume of washing to do. Or you might hire washerwomen to take the laundry back to their facilities, doing the washing that she she might do either at her home or in a public washing space, though the latter was less common in the 18th century metropolitan areas.
1: Gentry women generally did not do their own laundry, though they might be familiar with the process of getting the laundry done and supervise everything that that entailed. They might also launder smaller personal items, but this would be more like doing what we might call, you know, the spot treatment rather than the full laundry treatment. So, you know, like when you're traveling and you have to wash things out in the hotel bathroom, that sort Mm -hmm. of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Small articles of clothing, that sort of thing. One of the main reasons that Gentry didn't do the laundry was that it was an extremely physical and exhausting process. John Stiles, author of Dress of the People, notes that even some working-class women paid to have their laundry done, which kind of emphasizes just how hard the work was. Like, nobody really wanted to do the laundry.
1: Yeah. If you had any sort of excess budget to pay to have your washing done, then you did that. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Laundry work required intense physicality, as well as some specific tools of the trade. This generally included a large copper pot, access to hot water, aka the ability to build up a fire and heat the water, laundry soap, which was really expensive in the 18th century, a laundry mangle, which was used to squeeze out excess water, and a large space, not only for the washing, but also for the drying of the laundry.
0: And those are sort of like the basic tools. That's basics. Yeah, that's, that's like if you're doing like a large load of like household linens kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, I think, and I think it's worth dwelling on some of these things a bit longer. Like you were saying about the hot water, you don't just have to have access to water. But remember, you're likely having to haul water from its original source, then get it to a fire, then transfer it to the larger pots or vats. And that alone is incredibly labor intensive. Also dangerous, just like parting boiling water around. Yeah. And then after the washing is done, that water then has to be hauled away in largely a reverse process. So you have to find your drainage area, take out individual pots like this. That's just the water that we're talking about.
1: It's very different from having your Maytag do it all for you, you know? There, there is a difference. There is. Yes. Hilary Davidson, a previous guest on this podcast, in her book Dress in the Age of Jane Austen, talks a bit more about the time and labor involved in the next stages of the laundry process, saying, Once the washing was done and dried, two days, it had to be carefully ironed and starched another day. Ironing was done on an ironing blanket, using flat irons, warmed over a fire, and tested manually for heat. It was a skilled job to crisp, fine lawns or pleat shirt sleeves without scorching the fabrics
0: or getting charcoal on them. Yeah, again, just thinking about all the time that's involved in this process. Two days for the washing, possibly longer, if the weather doesn't cooperate and holds up the drying process. Then it takes at least one more day to do the ironing. That's so many days. (laughs) So all
1: of this has to be done quickly, but also while paying attention to the individual quality and needs of individual garments. So think about how you'd have to wash a really fine muslin dress versus satin or silk versus personal
0: linens, etc. You can't do bulk loads for these kinds of garments. Yeah. Each one is going to have like all sorts of different technical requirements. So the laundresses would have to pay attention to any special requirements that the actual textiles required, but then also any requirements from their employers. Beau Brummel, for example, was a real stickler for how he wanted his laundry done, stating that it must have, quote, no perfumes, but very fine linen, plenty of it, and country washing.
1: So he's likely requesting a specific kind of expensive soap, as well as this country washing, which is likely a stated preference for his clothing to be washed and dried outside of London or city centers. He would want the fresh scent of the countryside on his clothes, which, you know, fair. <laughs> do you want your clothes to smell like grass and lavender or do you want it to smell like smoke and... The Thames. Yeah, exactly. Well,
0: it's interesting because this country washing thing in some of the household books, like the household management books of this era... There were tips about which trees and shrubs should be used for drying the laundry because they would leave a nicer scent on your clothing. And you have to, you know, you have to make sure that you're not putting in a shrub that's going to tear the clothing or leave a mark on it. So, like, this is a thing. This is a big process.
1: Brummel also had a passion for super starch cravats, which became a huge trend in this era. It essentially became standard practice as a result. This was an extra strain on laundresses who now had to spend even more time and supplies on the starch and ironing. So that's just like an example of how fashion and trends can kind of like dictate this very sort of like elemental work, right, that yeah. is being done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the labor force that's required to maintain these standards. And the process of laundry also required that both the employer and the employee took careful record of what was being sent for washing. Davidson gives us a bit more detail about this process when she says, Body linens were dated, monogrammed, numbered, or had other markings on them to record their owners, and to facilitate keeping track of what had been washed when. Keeping linens in recorded circulation ensured that no one garment was overwashed. In larger households, The linen marking system extended to all domestic washable textiles, such as sheets, towels, and the rest. It's a lot of marking of your laundry, but it's a system. It's a total system.
1: There is a really methodical kind of record keeping that goes into this laundry process for both the washerwoman and her employers to make sure that what is sent out is returned and everything is in order.
0: And washerwomen were actually really vulnerable to to theft in terms of, like, if they sent the laundry out and then not all of the items came back in because someone stole it or, like, yanked it off the, the bush or whatever, the, the washer women were, were on the on the hook for that. Um, so this record-keeping kind of a double-edged sword in that regard. And this kind of laundry list is exactly what Catherine Moreland comes across in Northanger Abbey instead of her gothic fantasy of some sort of, like, manifesto from a dying damsel in captivity. Um, She's a bit shocked that what she finds is something so prosaic, um, as you can tell from this passage in the novel when we get this. If the evidence of sight might be trusted, she held a washing bill in her hand. She seized another sheet and saw the same articles with little variation, a third, a fourth, and a fifth, presenting nothing new. Shirts, stockings, cravats, and waistcoats faced her in each. What a huge disappointment, you know, to have a list list of underwear rather than than a really interesting journal entry.
1: Catherine has essentially discovered a receipt from a laundress and what Davidson describes as a list, quote, recording the items sent for laundering and the cost. The list was a check for owner and laundress to ensure that nothing went astray quite a bit of record keeping a sort of paper management that is actually mm-hmm. going into this process as well
0: yeah and it's such a logical item to find in the cabinet that she's looking at and yet it's it's just devastating to Catherine's gothic sensibilities in this moment and that is that is why we love her really
1: so far we've talked a lot about the process of laundering but we also want to make sure we take a moment to acknowledge the women who are doing this labor As you probably can tell from what we've already discussed, doing laundry was a huge undertaking and in high demand,
0: but most people, regardless of class, didn't really want to do this particular kind of labor. And at the same time, according to Jenny Dyer's article, Georgian washerwomen, Tales of the Tub from the Long 18th Century, Dyer's article estimates that from this period, that, quote, charring, which is part-time cleaning, and laundry work together constituted the third most important occupation for women in London in the early 18th century. That is a ginormous labor force,
1: and the experiences of these washerwomen could vary greatly. As Dyer goes on to explain, quote: "Enterprising women living in secure accommodation with access to drying areas and with a regular and relatively prosperous clientele close by." represented one face of the Georgian washerwoman. Others went out to work in the houses of those who were invariably better off than themselves, sometimes working alone, sometimes assisting the mistress of the house, sometimes in groups. In urban areas, washerwomen served a wide range of households and institutions, as well as itinerant workers. So this
0: makes it pretty clear that washerwomen were sometimes employed on a regular basis, but that they could also be called to work at different households to help supplement work at very short notice. This left many washerwomen at the vagaries of part-time and unreliable work. According to Dyer, from the late 18th century, the numbers of these insecure part-timers grew as living in servants became too expensive to retain, due initially to the rise in the cost of food during the wars with France. Many of these women were brought into a wide range of households to fulfill the most arduous washing day tasks, as opposed to those who set up washing services from their own premises.
1: This demographic of women who perform this extremely physically taxing work are historically often overlooked. We do, however, have a really phenomenal exception in Mary Collier, who was a poet as well as a washerwoman. Her most famous poem, The Woman's Labor, an epistle to Mr. Stephen Duck, was published in 1739 as a reaction to Duck's poem, The Thresher's Labor, in which he basically denigrates female labor. And Mary Collier isn't having it. Her poem describes many forms of women's labor, including a really incisive section dedicated to washerwomen.
0: So here is a brief passage from that washerwomen section of her poem. Heaps of fine linen we before us view, whereon to lay our strength and patience too. Cambrics and muslins, which our ladies wear, laces and edgings, costly, fine, and rare, which must be washed with utmost skill and care. With Holland shirts, ruffles, and fringes too, fashions which our forefathers never knew.
1: Right there she's just giving us such a good overview of all the different types of fabrics Mm -hmm. that are involved and like the level of expertise, right, that a washerwoman would have to have in order to properly treat all of these different types of textiles. Yeah. The poem goes on and she ends with this fear that, quote, time runs on too fast. Since these women were generally paid for completing the task, regardless of how long it might take. So washerwomen around this time were paid somewhere between one shilling a day plus food or three shillings for a week. And as we've already mentioned, this work was not always consistent or reliable. So the idea of like, you need to try to do this as fast as you possibly can. That way you can take on more work, take on more clients and make
0: more money. Yeah. But when you have all of these like really delicate frills and furbelows, it holds up the process.
1: There's ruffles, there's fringes. Like That's not the kind of thing that you can just quickly scrub and like, Run it through the mangler because you will you'll destroy it. mm it,
0: mm-hmm. and then and then you get that taken out of your wages. Well, and at the beginning of this kind of washerwoman section of Collier's poem, it opens with the washerwomen up well before sunrise, and they're knocking on the door of their employer for the day, and they're waiting for them to answer, and so that they can so that they can start to work. And then throughout the rest of the section, there's the anxiety about trying to fit this monstrous task into a single day. And it ends with the woman leaving well past sunset, knowing that she'll have to be up before dawn the next day. And this is kind of Collier's snapshot of what it is to be a washerwoman in this era.
1: All this information really creates a sense of the importance of washerwomen and just how critical they were to society during this time and yet the relatively thankless nature of the tasks that they completed. These women were often paid poorly for their work, and even then it wasn't always consistent wages. It was a form of work that many women took up when particularly hard up for employment, and it was around the mid-18th century that several organizations in the UK and Ireland attempted to set up public laundries that would employ what they described as, quote, fallen women, as part of... Quote, rehabilitation. Heavy
0: on those air quotes, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: For example, the Magdalen Hospital for the Reception of Penitent Prostitutes was founded in late 1758 in Whitechapel, London.
0: These laundries operated from the 18th to the late 20th centuries. These laundries were essentially inhumane institutions that capitalized on the largely unpaid labor of these women. Thousands and thousands of women and children were victimized by these laundries over their duration.
1: This was very much labor of the time that it was considered essential, but it was not valued at all. Mm -hmm. And the people who performed the labor were also not valued. Let's now take all of this cultural context about washing and bring it back to the passage we began with in Sense and Sensibility. Miss Steele has been super nosy about Marianne's clothing and wardrobe, which, you know, that's a way to make friends, I guess, um, <laughs> including an interest in how
0: much Marianne's washing costs. She is invested in that question, which seems odd to me, but oh well. Um, <laughs> and Austin also makes it fairly clear that Miss Steele's obsession with Marianne's toilette is in poor taste. The narrator goes on to say this. The impertinence of these kind scrutinies, moreover, was generally concluded with a compliment, which, though meant as its douceur, was considered by Marianne as the greatest impertinence of all. For after undergoing an examination into the value and make of her gown, the color of her shoes, and the arrangement of her hair, she was almost sure of being told that, Upon her words, she looked vastly smart, and she dared say would make a great many conquests. I love it. Miss Steele cannot read a room. Marianne is not at all impressed by
1: Miss Steele's attention in this regard. However, we are going to be a little bit like Miss Steele, so (laughs) everyone just hang on to their hats for a moment and consider what might have been the process and cost of Marianne's washing, in this particular context.
0: Yes, embracing our inner Anne Steele. So we know that Marianne and Eleanor are in London, and they are at Miss Jennings' townhouse in London. shes They are her guests. One might assume that when you're a guest at someone's house, that you would have automatic access to their laundering services. Certainly for
1: an extended stay, right?
0: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But that assumption might be because, you know, we're thinking along the lines of using somebody else's, like, washing machine rather than thinking about the labor that was involved in all of this.
1: I mean, I guess it would be a little bit like you're staying with somebody and you're sort of like, can you take care of my dry cleaning for me?
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like when you put it in that context, you're like, okay, yeah, it's not safe to make that assumption.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So instead, the etiquette of the era dictated that guests had to make their own arrangements for laundry. Davidson writes... Quote, even when staying in a London house with an acquaintance, washing was a separate cost and may have required engaging a local washerwoman rather than the house servants.
0: So this essentially means that Marianne and Eleanor had to budget in laundry for their London visit. So they could either pay for a local washerwoman or if Mrs. Jennings has a laundry maid or a live-in staff member, they would pay that person to take on the extra labor of doing the laundry.
1: But this wasn't their only option, since they could also potentially use a courier service to send home dirty laundry and have fresh clothing sent from Barton Cottage. This is apparently what Austen did when she traveled to London. Davidson explains that quote Austen mentions this problem in her letters and that she quote sent dirty laundry home for washing perhaps because it was cheaper than the services of London washerwomen.
0: Jane and Cassandra Austin used the courier service, named Collier's Southampton Coach, to transport their clothing to and from London when possible. So Jane might write a letter home to her sister, asking her to send specific clothing items to her via the courier, while also sending her washing back home. This way, they could keep costs down, while also maintaining the fresh linens that they needed. So it's kind of a laundry exchange happening.
1: There are some financial similarities between the Austin sisters and the Dashwoods, at least similar enough to realize that that the Dashwoods' economies would have been familiar to Austin. So while we don't actually have a washing bill for Marianne's wardrobe, like the fantastic one that we get in Northanger Abbey, (laughs) we can speculate that the Dashwoods might make a similar choice to send washing via courier. That would certainly have been
0: an option for them. Well, and just to satisfy our inner and steel just a bit more, we do have a contextual idea of what one might spend on washing for a full year based on Austen's own expenses. Again, kind of drawing some parallels between the Dashwoods and the Austens. In 1807, Austen spent eight pounds, 14 shillings, Five pence for washing in that year. This came out of her entire expenditures for the year, which totaled 42 pounds, four shillings, eight pence. That means that Austin spent around 20% of her annual budget on laundry. So so we don't have um, a, a washing bill to satisfy Anne Steele's perception, but we do know there was definitely a budget for Marianne's washing.
1: Well, and if Marianne doesn't have a budget, you can be sure that Eleanor has a budget. So. Yes.
0: Eleanor is undoubtedly in charge of
1: that. I mean, let's be honest. Marianne probably has no idea how much her washing costs. It's true. Like, she could care less. It's true. But you know that Eleanor knows down to the very last penny. Like, she mm-hmm. knows. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Down to
1: the last pence.
0: Eleanor is on top of it. Yes. And she's probably never going to share that with Anne Steele. She's definitely not going to share that with Miss Steele.
1: Well, if you have any tales of laundry service to share with us, I feel like there must be some very amusing anecdotes of using laundry services in college. Trying
0: to be your own courier service to take mm-hmm. your laundry home yeah. to your parents' house. Yes, exactly.
1: You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin, and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com.
0: Stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about Sir Walter's Mirrors. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye!